0: Let anyone go down there. Uh, The title today is A Mechanical World, and and I think that'll make sense as we we dive into these chapters. So we're in the book of Job, and if this is your first time and you're joining us, let me just give a little recap. So Job is a righteous guy. He loves God very much. And because of his devotion to God, God has blessed him with a large family and with great wealth. And then we're told that the Satan shows up. Remember, Satan is not a name, but it's a title. It means the enemy, the deceiver. So the Satan, the enemy shows up, and and he says, Job's faith isn't real. He only loves you, God, because you give him good things. And, and so through a series of trials, God allows Satan to bring great suffering upon Job. He loses his health, he loses his wealth, he, he loses his family. And then we see how Job responds. He worships God. The Satan is wrong. Job's faith is real. And God is worthy of all glory and all honor. And the story's not over at that point. What we'll see next week is that Job is confused and he wants answers. And and so we'll be getting that as we begin looking at Job's speeches. But this week, we're going to see that three of Job's friends show up and they come to comfort him. But in reality, if you know the story, they bring no comfort. They come with no tissues, no shoulders to cry on, no gentle counsel. They have already diagnosed the problem. Do you know those kind of people? Like, they can take a small amount of information and they know everything at that moment and they're never wrong. So that's, that's these friends and that's what they're doing as they come. They're going to make great claims with the information that they have. Now, we might be tempted to think that since Satan has kind of slipped into the background, that really the attack on Job is over. But what we're gonna see is that's not the case at all. Like runners in a relay race, these friends have taken the baton from Satan, and they're going to now furiously attack Job with their words. They offer no grace, no mercy, no And so what we understand is the battle is not over yet. It's continuing, just on a different front now. And so these friends, they have a very mechanical understanding about God and about the world. What I mean by that is that there's no mystery to it. They have it all figured out like a machine. They have a manual. They know how the machine works. They know how God works. They know how the world works. There's no mystery. They have it all figured out. And because Job doesn't agree with them, they're going to become extremely angry with Job as the speeches continue. And so, the main point that we're going to see is that God saves us by his grace so that we would not trust in ourselves. And so, that's that's what we're going to see as we dig into this passage. Um, So, we have nine chapters that we can choose from. We're not going to read them all, I know you're disappointed. Nine chapters of speeches, uh, and so um, I, I really had to pick one that I wanted us just to read, and we'll spend some time in it, but we're going to look at a lot of passages today. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Job chapter 11, and I want to invite you to stand, and this will be a, a sampling of what the friends are going to say in these nine chapters, and we're just going to read verses one through six of Job chapter 11. It says in verse 1, Then Zophar, the name of answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just pray that through your spirit right now working in your word that you would give us wisdom. God, I pray that we would rightly understand the gospel that salvation is by grace and not by works. And Lord, I pray that we would see the errors and the lies in, in the friends of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and that we would not fall prey to that. And if we have believed any of these lies, Lord, I pray that you would root that out of our hearts and our minds this morning. Give us an accurate and a clear understanding, not only who you are, but who your son Jesus is, what it means to be saved, and how we live a godly life. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so what I want to do in the beginning is, is just want to make sure we understand who these friends are, uh, what, what, what is their worldview when they're, when they're coming to Job. And so I have three, three things that we just need to understand when, when thinking about these guys, uh, Number one, they believe that God is in control. All throughout the book of Job, God's sovereignty is upheld. The friends never once deny this truth. Number two, they believe God is just. The friends will fully affirm that God always does what is right. And number three, God punishes uh, the, the wicked and he rewards the righteous. In fact, it's because of this the friends become so angry at Job. He could he continually declares that he's righteous and blameless. Now, when it says that Job is blameless, it doesn't mean he's sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. But it means that, that when he does sin, he confesses it. He comes before God and asks for forgiveness. Um, he has not lived a secret life of sin that now God has, has found out and Job's being punished for. And so you might say, well, well, how do we know Job's friends are wrong? Because when we read that they, they believe God is sovereign and that he's just and that, that he rewards the righteous and, and punishes the wicked. Don't we all believe that? Like none of us, I think, would disagree. So how do we know Job's, wrong, Job's right and they're wrong? Like could it not be the other way around? Could it not be That Job is wrong? Could it not be that he does have some type of sin in his life that now God is punishing him for? How do we know? Well, we know for two reasons, that the friends are wrong and Job is right. And I'll just give them to you. Number one, because the way the book begins. We have chapters one and two, which we spent a couple weeks looking at that. And in chapters one and two, three times we are told that Job is, is blameless, upright, Fears God and turns away from evil. And in fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, God Himself says, There is no one like Job on all the earth. So, so three times in the opening chapters, which really which remember it's a prologue, Job has no idea that chapters 1 and 2 take place. Therefore, yours and my benefit, so that when we're reading the book of Job, we know why everything is happening, so that we won't be like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the friends. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, the way the book ends. And so in chapter 42, verses seven through nine, some of the last verses in the book, this is what we read. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord had accepted Job's prayer. So we have these two bookends around the book of Job that says, Job is right, the friends are wrong. So it's not me coming and telling you, hey, I think these guys are wrong. I'm not trying to influence you in any way. This is what the text is saying, and it's given that we're given these bookends so that we would read the book of Job with this lens and understanding he doesn't have a secret life of sin. Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, the message that they bring is going to be wrong. They, they, in a sense, they're, they're worldly counselors, bringing worldly wisdom. They offer no real comfort, no joy, and no hope. In fact, if we were to think of it this way, Job is, is drowning in suffering, and their answer is to throw him a concrete-filled life preserver. Here, Job, take this. We're here to comfort you, and watch him drown all the more. Here's the problem, or here's, I'll say, the difficulty or the challenge what they say sounds really right. Like if you've read Job, you're like, well that sounds right, well that sounds right, that sounds right. So let me give you a couple examples. Like Job chapter eight, verses five and six. This is what we read. This is Bildad speaking. And these are just great names to not name your kid. So if you're wrestling, we've had some new parents here. Um, if you're still wrestling with names or you know, future kids, you don't go with Delilah. You know, you don't go with Jezebel. You don't go with Bildad, Zophar, Elephant. These are just names. They're kind of like off, off the name list. So just remember that. Here's what, Joe, here's what Bildad says. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Amen. So if you seek God, he will, he will bless you. I mean, don't we read that all throughout the Psalms? It sounds right. Job chapter 11, verse 20. Zophar, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. He's basically saying, look, the wicked will perish. Well, don't we read that all in the Psalms also and all throughout scriptures? So how are these statements wrong? Because in and of themselves, they sound really right? but you and I know that we can cherry pick just about any statement from any speech and we can characterize the person by either wicked or good based upon how we use those words, right? Like we just extract a certain sentence from someone's speech. We see this all the time on news and social media and we can characterize someone however we want. So what we have to remember is the context that these words are being said in their argument. And we have to remember the beginning and the end of Job, that we are told he is righteous and Job's friends are wrong. So we must understand that even when what they say is right based upon the context and the argument that they're giving, it's wrong. Does that make sense? We'll see as we go through. Um, So what we're gonna do is we're gonna summarize nine chapters, all the friends' arguments. Um, Each friend basically is gonna show up and they're gonna give a speech. So Eliphaz will show up, and then Job will speak, and then Bildad, and then Job will speak, and then Zophar, and then Job will speak. And this will go round after round after round. Three rounds of this will happen. And as this uh, continues, as these speeches uh, progress so will the anger of these friends increase and escalate. In fact, it's going to escalate so much that at the end, Zophar, the one we read from, he's not even going to speak. So there's actually only eight speeches because he's so ticked off, he's like, I'm not even wasting words anymore. So he's done with Job. And so we need to remember that the reason that they're coming at him so strong is that they have this mechanical understanding of the world. Everything is figured out in order to hold this position, they have to reject three biblical truths. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through these truths. Now, it's easy for us to to look at these three guys and go, yep, they're wrong. But we need to realize that these three truths also creep their way into the church. And and we're going to, as we walk through them, You might even find yourself saying, Oh, I've thought some of these things before, or we have said this before, or I do think that when I'm in suffering, or I have counseled people this way, because what we find out is that you can't necessarily keep these things out of the church. They do slip their way in. That is Satan's strategy. And so, what we're going to do is look at three reasons why Job's friends are wrong. Number one, they do not believe in mystery. What I mean by that is they look at the world and God who runs this world like, like a machine and they have it all figured out. And, and I think if you've been in church a while, you, you sometimes may have heard people come to God like a vending machine. Uh, the vending machine analogy is actually really helpful here and we'll just kind of carry that throughout this whole sermon. Uh, if you put in the correct money and you push the correct button like A11 you get the Snickers. Right? That's what happens. It's, it's pretty easy, or if you want to drink, my kids love when they go over to Timberland High School, they watch one of the, um, the basketball games, there's a vending machine, my son Caleb knows exactly where that is, he has the money, he goes to it first thing when we get there, and he gets whatever drink he gets. And when he puts in the money, and he pushes the button, what happens? The drink falls out. Every, well, yeah, we'll do it every single time, unless if it's out, but every time. So, so that's how these guys are looking at the world. That's how they understand God. Like, like, think about it. If we go back to Zophar, what we saw in chapter 11 here, think about what he says. Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes." But oh, that God would open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom for, his manifold, for his, he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So in essence, Zophar says, shut up, Job. This is what he's saying. It's like, should you not be silenced? You don't understand God, Job. Your doctrine is filled with errors. I I wish that God would speak to you so you would know him like we do. So you would have the wisdom and the understanding that we do and you would know how wrong you are, Job. Or this is what Bildad says in Job chapter eight. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Do you notice the formula that, that Bildad gives there? Like it's a formula. It's a very prosperity gospel-ish formula. If you do what's right, Job, God will fix your situation. And do you remember what Satan said in the very beginning? The only reason Job loves you is because you give him good things. What's the temptation here? Job, just confess your sins so you get good things again. That's the temptation here. Agree with Satan throughout all of these speeches, and God will fix your life, and it'll be all good again. They have a very mechanical understanding of God. If you just push the right buttons, then God will give you good things. But if you push the wrong buttons, if you've done evil things, then God will bring suffering upon you. I mean, this is a works-based salvation that characterizes all religions except for Christianity, but it doesn't just stay outside the church. It creeps its way in. I want you to think about this. You probably have heard something like this before. This is how sometimes we talk with each other or we counsel each other. If you simply go to church and read your Bible, life will be better. Have you said that to someone? Or you've thought that? Maybe life is on a certain trajectory and you're like, man, I just need to get back in church now because then that will make life all better. Or, when bad things happen, I've heard Christians say, in some form or another, "Why well, I didn't pray or read my Bible today. Do you think that's why this happened? As if God is just sitting there with a stick, and He's like, oh, you missed it today. It's not saying that our actions have no consequences, but what we're looking at is saying, is this how the world operates? Is this what God does? It's just a machine. If I do good, I get good. And if I miss something... If I make a mistake, God's just sitting there with a stick. Remember that little game where little things pop up and you beat them on the head? It's exactly like the position of Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. If you don't know that, take your kids over to the arcade and teach them theology. <laughs> or oh, wrong, wrong theology. And then teach them right theology. This mindset, so think about, it. think about it. This mindset puts you in the driver's seat of your own fate. Your actions control whether good things or bad things come into your life or, or to maybe change analogies a little bit. And we were to think of like the genie in a bottle. Anyone watch Aladdin? Our kids know Aladdin, right? You got the, the cartoon version or now the real life. Cartoon one was better. Um, if, if you just rub it, the genie comes out and then what does the genie do? Whatever you tell him. If you do good works, you rub the bottle with good works, he'll do whatever you say. And if you rub it with bad, with evil works, then he's gonna come out and evil things will then come to you. But you're, you're sitting there in the driver's seat controlling your fate. But what we come into God's word, we see that God's not a genie and he's not a giant machine, which we can figure out. And this Bible is not a manual. Like, if you read this, you're not, oh, now I know who God is and all that he does. And now I know exactly how he operates in every single situation. That's not what the Bible is necessarily about. Rather, what this word does, it reveals to us an infinitely powerful, gracious, good, righteous, and patient God who loves us. That's what it introduces us to God. And because we know that he's infinite, We know that there's mystery in everything there is about God. Now, that means, that doesn't mean we don't know anything about God. He's given us his word, so we do know God, but we'll never know him fully. And so we need to realize that every doctrine and everything we know about God, we don't know to its fullest extent. Does that make sense? He's infinite, so we know he's good, and we have an understanding of his goodness, but he's gooder. Then we can imagine, right? That's a good word. Good theology coming out in lots of words today. So, But we don't need to be frustrated by the fact that he's infinite and that there's mystery. Rather, that ought to move us to praise and worship. And that's not me telling you that. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So in in Romans 11, verse 33, Paul has spoken for 11 chapters on the gospel. He's outlining the gospel, shows our depravity, shows how Christ comes, on how he absorbs the very wrath of God, the freedom that we now have in Christ. He's explaining this whole gospel salvation that we have. And he gets to chapter 11, verse 33, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom." and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Isn't that an awesome passage? Memorize that one. But what's he praising God for? Does he praise God for what he knows? Think about it. What does he praise God for? How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? He's praising God for mystery. We don't understand everything that God has done here. And that moves Paul to praise and to worship. When we forget the mystery of God, we'll think of him like a machine. And when people don't agree with us or when the world doesn't work the way that we think it should, how do we respond? In a fury of anger like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar will do. This is why they're so mad. Listen, anger and arrogance always spring out of pride. And I can say this to dads, Wives, you're on your own. Moms, you're on your own. Uh, but I think you can probably relate to this. Um, we know this, though, dads. I think, I think often we can struggle with anger. Often we, we can struggle with being gentle with our kids. And when things happen, sometimes we can be really harsh with them. And a lot of times it's because they're just simply not understanding or doing it the way that what? We want them to, Right? And because they're not thinking like us, operating like us, understanding the world or the project or whatever it is we're working on, how do we respond? Anger and frustration. We're arrogant at that moment, thinking that there is no room for error in our understanding and that the best thing for our kid to do right now would share our understanding. So this, this creeps into us. When we, when we have this arrogance about us, it creeps into our own hearts, into our lives, and it will be displayed through anger. This is what John Calvin said. He, said. he said, let us, I say, allow the Christian to unlock his mind and ears to all the words of God which are addressed to him, provided he do it with this moderation, that whenever the Lord shuts his sacred mouth, he also desists from inquiry. Meaning, let's, let's, let's study everything that God has given us. Let's know everything that he tells us. But when God puts a boundary and says, there's mystery beyond here, let's be okay with mystery beyond there. And let's not say, well, I have to have all this figured out. Because at that moment, we're saying, I just have to be God. And there are things that he's not given us, at least yet, now, when we get to God's speeches in the end of Job, we're going to realize that the more we understand God, the more content we ought to be in the very mystery of his sovereign rule. Because he's going to turn to Job and say, Job, do you know how I do all of these things in creation? And the point is, Job's going to say, no, I have no clue how you do all that. And in the end, God is showing Job that he can rest in his goodness and the sovereign rule that He has. So that's number one, they reject mystery. Number two, they do not believe in delayed justice. So Job's friends are convinced that Job doesn't understand justice. They believe, um, they believe that there is no delay at all in justice. So when you do something wrong at that moment, retribution will come. Um, if you think of it like a vending machine, when, when, you, when you push, you know, A11 and the Snickers is supposed to drop, it doesn't say, come back tomorrow. Like, wouldn't it be terrible? Like, you run up, and you're like, man, save my 60 cents all day, put it in. Yes, don't worry, we'll save it for you tomorrow at 2 o'clock, come back. Like, what would you do at that moment? Kick it, shake it, do something terrible? Um, well, that's exactly what Job's friends are saying. He's like, that's not how the world works, Job. If you do evil, you don't come back tomorrow. Bad things are going to happen right now to you. And so this is what Bildad will say, Job chapter 18, verses five through 10. He says, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. The flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him is in the path. Meaning, man, when you do something, the snare is right there to grab you. Or this is what Zophar says in chapter 20, verse four. He says, do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment, though his height though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will, chase, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. He's saying, look, yeah, he's gonna rejoice and then just like that, he's gonna be gone. As soon as the wicked comes to light, Judgment will come upon him and he'll be removed, and nobody will even remember him. Now, I want you to think about how appealing this is. And you laugh, it's really good in a twisted way. Like your circumstances become the means on how you measure how good and bad you are now, if that's what's true. This is how Hinduism, Buddhism, the prosperity gospel, many new age belief systems, this is how they all operate. Just look at your life. What you have gives you the information to know your worth, your value. Are you good or are you not? And it makes it really easy just to judge other people. I don't need to know anything about you. I can just look at your life. Oh, that's a bad person there. Or he's worse than me, he doesn't have what I have, or oh, that person's really good, I just need to live like that person, so I get the good things that he has. This is exactly what Job's friends have done. Google News popped up on their, you know, on, on their screen, try, came to think, on their phone that day, and they're scrolling through, and it's like, oh, Job suffered. Oh, what happened? Oh, he lost everything? Wicked guy. I don't need to know anything else about him. He was a horrible horrible sinner now there's much we can say here on how that is wrong and, and why that is not a good way to look at life but but to deny delayed justice would mean that there is no mercy and if there is no mercy there is no gospel like we, we need to understand that when adam and eve sinned back in the garden now think think about this vending machine mentality Evil goes in, evil comes out, right? So Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden. What should have happened right then if the retribution principle that these three friends are, are, are advocating for was to take place? They're dead right then. Creation project, over. God starts now with something new. You and I are never born. That's what would happen if God operated the way these three friends think that he does, but it's because of God's mercy that he suspends judgment, that he would save people. In fact, this is is literally Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Paul says this, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So in essence, he's saying, Do you think because you're not suffering right now, and you're experiencing God's kindness, that means you're good? That means you're not sinful? That means you're not wicked? He's like, no, that's not what that means. God is kind, and he's, he's persevering with you. He's patient with you, so that his mercy would go forth. The gospel The news of Jesus Christ would spread not only to you, but to all peoples in the world that they would hear it and what? That they would repent. That's why God delays injustice. It's because He's good and He's gracious and He's merciful and He's slow to anger. The fact that God does not judge us right now in his kindness and mercy is so, uh, so that we can believe in the gospel and be saved. The God of Job's friends, he's a tyrant. He's not gracious. He's not merciful. He's not slow to anger. In fact, this is how so many people think of God of the Bible, Right? I mean, you've all heard of these people who, who basically say, well, I don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible because I've heard about who he is in the Old Testament. They don't even need to read the Bible because that message has gone so uh, rampant throughout culture that everyone just knows, well, the God of the Bible, God of the Old Testament, he's just angry all the time. He's wrathful. And I don't, why would I worship a wrathful God? I don't even need to read that book. And and if you think about it, if we are angry and arrogant with others, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, then how should we expect them to think of God? What kind of God are they advocating for? Exactly what keeps the world from wanting to know the God of the Bible? Listen, we testify of God's grace, mercy, love, patience, when what? What? We are gracious, merciful, loving, and patient with others. Let me ask you, you just, this is not crowd participation time. This is, you know, your introspection time. So don't feel the need to say something. But if I asked you, if you are to reflect God, then what do your words and actions tell others about God? You just look back at this last week. If people were just to look at me what, what kind of God would they know that I worship? Would it be the God of the Bible or something else? The more we know God, the more we ought to reflect Him. Do you know that? The more we know Him, the more we reflect Him. And we reflect Him with humility, because why? Go back to point one. There's mystery, right? So we've never so wrapped our head around God that we have every single little part, piece figured out. So we go, man, I know everything. No mystery at all. And if you don't understand, I'll just explain it to you in my arrogance. But rather, the more we know God, the more we reflect Him, the more loving and kind we are, and the more humble we are with others, because we know, what's strange is, the more we know about God, What? the more we know we don't know. Isn't that crazy? And yet, the more content we are also. Because he's so much greater and he's gooder. It's a terrible word. It's all you're going to remember today, gooder. But he's so much greater and sweeter than we could have ever imagined. So those are the first two. Number three, they also do not believe in righteous suffering. So, if, if the righteous suffer, then God has done something wrong. So let's go back to our vending machine. To say that the righteous suffer, would be like putting your money in, pressing the Snickers button, A11, and getting a tofu bowl. <laughs> like, so I was trying to wrestle like, what would be like the opposite of Snickers? Like, how horrible would that be? You're just like, oh man, nutty goodness. And a tofu bowl. Like even if that could come out, that's disgusting, and there's no way that whatever was was in there should have made tofu. Um, So, if that happened, and you got this bowl of mush, or however it's you know concocted in a vending machine, are you happy? Are you like yes? Are you eating it? No. What are you going to say? This thing is broken. Like, right? Stay away from this machine. It is horrible. It eats your money and gives you mush. So just think about that. It's broken. That cannot happen. This is why they're so angry at Job. Job, you don't understand it. That's not how God works. He doesn't punish the righteous. Listen to listen to Bildad in chapter 8. He says, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. So remember, Job's suffering. He has boils all over him. There's 10 graves in front of him. And, and now uh, Bildad shows up and he's like, your kids deserved everything they got. They're wicked people. Don't even think that you're innocent or they're innocent. That doesn't happen. Why? Because go back. Does God pervert justice? Does does God do what's not right, Job? That's his argument. Then there's Eliphaz. Now, if you were to read chapter 4, Eliphaz starts out like the guy that we all like. He's like, hey, Job, can we talk? I got a few things I want to say to you. If If I say them, will you listen and he starts out really gentle, but of course Job doesn't listen, and and so things escalate. So now we're in chapter 22, and this is Eliphaz speaking, and he's he's not got the same tone he does in verse 4. He says, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. Now, so this is what he's going to do. He's just going to make up sins. This is going to make him. This is what it is. For you have exacted the pledges of your brothers for nothing. You stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so you cannot see, and a flood of waters covers you. Do you see what he did? He's like, I know you're sinful, and you're going to just sit here and say, I didn't do anything wrong. So let me just tell you all the things you did wrong. So he just starts making up sins. Use your power to take money from from others. You took their clothes. You neglected the poor and hungry. You didn't care for the widows. This is why such horrible things have happened to you and your kids. You're a terrible person, Job. But notice how verse 4 begins. If you have that slide, can you go back to verse 4? It says, Eliphaz, he mocks Job. He mocks him. He says, is it for your fear of God that he reproves you? In other words, Job, do you really think God brought this suffering on you because you're righteous? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what's happened in the book of Job. That's exactly why he has suffered. Remember, we have the bookends. What do the bookends tell us? Job is righteous, blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Job chapter one, verse eight. There is no one on earth like Job. Do you think God did this because you're righteous? Yes! 100 percent. That's why it happened. Job has suffered ultimately because the world is not about us and our glory and our name being made known. Rather, it's about God and his glory. God ordains the suffering of Job, show the genuineness of his faith, and to show that he is truly, truly, truly glorious. We have to remember our God is infinitely powerful. This means he's not limited to only using good things to accomplish his purposes. In fact, what's, what's crazy is if you, if you look at all the gods of other religions, like anything that has like polytheistic type religions, you have the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the land, the God of, you know, whatever, and they're all limited. That's, whatever that is, the God of the sun uses the sun, The God of the moon uses the moon. God of the water uses water. And they're limited to certain spheres of power, but none of them have all reaching power. Until we come into the Bible and we see a God who's unlimited in power. And he's able to use not only good things, but also evil things to accomplish glorious purposes. And we see this truth all throughout the Bible. Story of Joseph in the Old Testament story of the church in the book of Acts as they persecuted and they spread so that the entire world is then filled with believers proclaiming the gospel. And of course, the, the example that trumps them all is the very cross of Jesus Christ, where the greatest, most horrific evil that has ever been committed in the world is used for the advancement of God's glory and the salvation of all who believe in Jesus Christ. That's exactly how our salvation comes about. It comes because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true, blameless, sinless, righteous one who came and suffered in our place so we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. Without righteous suffering, there's no salvation. There's no salvation. But for Bildad Zophar... In Eliphaz, they don't need salvation because they trust in their works. Now, if we think about this for a moment, we see why they're they're so angry at Job. If he's innocent, they're wrong. And if they're wrong, then the God and the world we live in is not a machine. They're not in the driver's seat. They're not in control of their destiny. Their good work's cannot save them. God's not in a genie in a bottle in which somehow they control with their good or evil works. And in fact, they too could suffer like Job. They need Job to be wrong. Job has to be wrong because if he's right, their entire world system is turned upside down at this moment and they cannot understand a world where the righteous would suffer. They have to get Job to agree with him so they will attack him and beat him furiously with his words. And here's the good news, he doesn't agree. He doesn't agree throughout the entire uh, book of Job. He continually says, no, but I'm, I'm righteous. I didn't, I didn't do these things. You are not saved by your good works. Your good deeds in this life will not earn you a spot in heaven. You are not ultimately in control of your life. You've never had the steering wheel. Praise God. And we know this to be true. Like you you know that this is true because you see righteous people, innocent people, godly, loving people, they suffer, right? And you see wicked people who do not love God and often do very wicked things, and they flourish in this life. We see this. We know that this made-up world of Eliphaz, so Zophar actually doesn't exist, but this is the message that's continually communicated for centuries throughout this world. That shows us, because of our sin nature, how much we will reject grace from saving us. We want it to be works according to our sinfulness because that means we have some level of control. But What we see when we come to God's word is that God is not asleep and the world is not out of control. He uses both good and evil to accomplish his purposes and God works in this way so we would trust him. And so that we would trust him for the grace that he gives for our salvation. And ultimately, because our God is full of grace and mercy, not only will our good deeds not save us, but also our bad deeds will not condemn us if we believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible news? So while the world wants to characterize you by good and by evil, what we know, the good's not going to save you. So if you're here today and you're saying, but I I live a really good life, when I look at others around me, I'm definitely above them morally. That does nothing for you in the presence of God. And if you're sitting here and looking at yourself and going, I have done horrible things and I have had horrible things happen to me, yet you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are washed, cleansed, And what we read in Isaiah is that you are made white like the snow. His blood washes over you and cleanses you, and you are clean. And God now sees you, not in your righteousness or your unrighteousness, but in the righteousness of his son, so that you would be adopted into his family. And he would look at you and say, child of God. Isn't that incredible? That's the gospel, that you're saved by grace and not by your works. If you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven and washed clean. Why would we want to be in control? Like, why would you take more comfort in saying, man, if only I'm in the driver's seat and my works just have to outweigh my bad ones, my good ones do. That's a scary proposition when we stand before an infinitely holy, perfect God. Because your good works will never be good enough. The only hope we have is the grace of Christ, and we must know this gospel so that it transforms us and we reflect this gospel, the truth of it, in the way that we love others, in the way that we are humble and kind and patient and merciful with others, and we must, we must counsel others with this gospel so we don't fall into the lies of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, because we do. We so quickly will go, maybe this is happening because X, Y, and Z in my life or I just wasn't good enough and God's now beating me. We must come back to the gospel every day, every week. Remind ourselves, remind one another that we are saved by grace, not by works. Let's pray. Father, Father, we praise you. Lord, we praise you for nine chapters of men who use a a wrong theology to try to twist and manipulate Job. And yet, by your goodness, you have included these chapters so that we would see the folly of works, that we would see that we cannot make ourselves right And that, God, we would understand that the only way we can be right is because truly the sinless one, your Son, Jesus Christ, came and suffered for us. Us on the cross, that we who believe in him would be forgiven and adopted into your family. I pray we know that truth. And Lord, I pray that we would resist the lies of Satan, and that we would not believe those. And I pray that we would so love this truth and be zealous for it, that we would tell others in this world about it so that they also would be rescued from thinking their good works can save them Or because of the evil things that they have done or have done or had done to them, that they cannot experience your salvation by grace. Lord, may we know this truth, love this truth, and proclaim this truth every single day of our lives. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.